You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Well, hi guys. As Nick said, I am Michael. I'm an intern here. I'll be going on staff after I graduate. I'm a senior. I'm studying financial planning. And yeah, that's that's about it for me. I'm an, I'm an open book, and there's there's not much more to me than that. Um, but you know, as I was as I was figuring out the sermon, planning it out, and um, deciding how I wanted to open it, I was thinking about how previous speakers had opened their sermons, and it always started with a wholesome story or a joke. Or, you know, something with, oh, look at what my kids did this week, and how funny and cute is that? And I don't have kids, um, nor do I have a wholesome story for you this week. Um, I have a story, but I'll be honest, it's a little heavy. Um, so I wanted to start with some dad jokes, get some knee slappers, um, get some grins, get some grimaces, but hopefully get the chuckles out of the way. So I, uh, I asked everyone on our staff team, Myself included, there are eight of us, four interns, four staff members. Um, I asked them to send their best dad joke. And of the seven that I asked, only two responded. So I am here to honor the two that responded and call out the other five who didn't. So Rod sent me one, one of my favorites, I've heard this one before, was how do you know when you're listening to a dad joke? when it becomes apparent. I know it's a bad one, but all of these are pretty bad. And then uh, David sent me one and I I tweaked it ever so slightly just to make it a little more obvious, a little more apparent, if you will. Uh, It's hard to find a good dad joke about breakfast, but I'm sure I'll get excited about one soon enough. And then the one that I came up with, well not came up with, that I uh, heard before and wanted to bring to you, and this might be more of a pastor joke than a dad joke, is why do we call them the Sadducees? Well, they didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, so they were sad, you see. (laughs) So I know all of those are really bad, but like I said, I hope hope you got some some grimaces in, but also some grins and some laughs. Because I want to dive in, but like I said, it's it's kind of a sad story. Um, So I wanted to start on as high of a note as I could. So I think you all know by now that I used to work at Panera, Um, but if you don't know or you're not really sure of the details, I worked at Panera for nearly five and a half years. Uh, Far too long, four and a half years too long is what I generally say, but I, I learned a lot there. But I think the main thing I learned, unfortunately, was how petty the world is and also how petty I myself can be. In my time there, I trained over 100 employees. And while I was there five and a half years, most of those happened in a three-year period. Training was about a two to three-week process, so that meant I was generally training on average about one and a half employees every week for about three years. Now, I don't remember all of them, but there are two categories of trainees that stuck out and I still remember most of. The first were those that exceeded my expectations. The ones that started out good enough, but had potential. 
and after training went above and beyond to become a great worker. I remember one in particular, I'll just call her Jay. She was, she was a good enough worker when I started training her, uh, but soon after, she worked hard, became a trainer. She's now a manager, um, both as her trainer and as her friend. I'm really proud of where she's gone, and she perfectly fit into that first category. But then the second category, and this is where I get petty. This is where you really see the pettiness that I learned. I remember the ones that disappointed me the ones who showed such great potential during training, but then very soon after let me down. I know it is petty and something that I should have let go, but when you devote over 20 hours to training someone and they reflect poorly upon you, it stings. I had a reputation as a trainer the general manager at the store told me he always put trainees with me because he knew they would turn out well. So like I said, when they reflected poorly upon me, it hurt. And the thing is, I wasn't just an experienced trainer that knew how to train people well. I was a passionate trainer. And what I mean by that is I truly wanted to see all of my trainees succeed. I, I cared about them. They were my trainees. I wanted to see them soar. And so when they didn't have that same vision, it was frustrating, and I could be very petty. And I remember one trainee in the second category in particular. I will call her Becky, because I don't think anyone here is named Becky, and I don't want to offend anyone by calling her her real name. Um, so anyways, Becky showed more potential than most of my trainees, probably top 10 trainees as far as potential goes. She had worked in food service previously, so she was already good at talking to customers. Brand new workers, their biggest hump to get over generally is the customer service interactions and knowing how to talk to those customers. So she already was great at that, putting her miles ahead of a starting worker. But not only that, she caught onto our ordering system very quickly. The machines that we use to put in the orders are a nightmare of a labyrinth, and she figured it out super quickly, which was incredibly impressive. But not only that, she took initiative to clean, to restock, to reorganize the bagels, to reorganize the pastry display to make it look pretty and appealing to customers. And the biggest one of all, she took initiative to sweep, which seems pretty insignificant, but this was the biggest deal of any trainee. I noticed that there was a pretty regular pattern with trainees. If someone was bad at sweeping, they will turn out to be a bad worker. And if they were good at sweeping, they will turn out to be a good worker. This was generally true probably over 80% of the time. Good worker good sweeper, bad sweeper, bad worker. And Becky seemed to follow that trend during her training with me. I finished her training thoroughly impressed with her potential, thoroughly impressed that she swept and swept well. But then, due to scheduling, I didn't see her for about a month. I only worked evening shifts because of my schedule, and she wanted to work day shifts because of her schedule, meaning she worked lunch and I worked dinner. 
She had only been scheduled during the evening so that I could train her. So once that was done, like I said, I didn't see her for about a month. But about a week or two after I finished training her, people started asking me about Becky. Asking how she was during trainer, uh, training, if she was a bad worker, because it had become quickly apparent to those working with her that she was not a good worker. I was told that she was on her phone all the time. She had become quite lazy on the job, not wanting to do her work, trying to avoid doing the work. On top of that, she came in high all the time. Rather than the good customer service that she'd shown me, she became petty with customers. And on top of that, she was rude to her coworkers, and that was one of the main lines that I drew, was you be kind and respectful to your coworkers, and she did not follow that. And here's what I mean. Her baby daddy slash ex-boyfriend, they were not in a relationship anymore, worked at Panera as well. And so when her baby daddy started flirting with a different coworker, Becky went crazy, screaming, yelling, and cussing out the girl. Because of this, Becky then got transferred to evenings, and I started working with her again. And I quickly realized everything that people had told me was true. So everyone quickly came to dislike Becky and dreaded working with her, myself included. Then one day, I come into work and see that she had been scratched off the schedule, which meant that she had either quit or been fired. Now, because gossip spreads like wildfire, and I also asked five minutes within clocking in, I learned that she had been caught drinking on the job and was fired on the spot for it. And you know what my first reaction was? Happiness. She had been fired. It was justice. Justice had been served. She was a bad worker. No one liked her. She finally crossed the line, and she paid the penalty for it. It was justice. But in my celebration of me no longer having to see her or work with her, you know what I forgot? Here was a 22-year-old substance abuser who had a one-year-old son and was so poor feeding into her addictions that she had to live in her mother's attic. And I celebrated her getting fired. This single mother no longer had an income, and I was happy about it. But that's what justice is, right? Well, I think you all are here shaking your head, saying, no, that's not justice. That wasn't right. And I agree with you. Put simply, no, that wasn't justice. So as we dive into our passage today, I hope to unpack what true justice is, what godly justice is, so we can understand how our definition and our understanding of justice is twisted and radically inaccurate. So today we're looking at Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, if you want to flip there in your Bibles. But before we dive into that, I want to frame in this passage with what was going on in the previous chapter in Isaiah. Now, a lot is going on in Isaiah 41, so let me just give you the highlights. First, God speaks of a warrior from the east, Cyrus from the Persian Empire, who will conquer Babylon. 
He's a ruthless warrior, violent, destructive. And it then says the nations will run to idols for security rather than God. It mentions the goldsmith as the creator. This created being trying to create saviors. But how can a created creator create someone to save the people of Israel? Then as we near the end of the chapter, God challenges the idols. Like an absolute savage saying that they have no mouthpiece and no one to speak for them. God says that if they want to prove themselves, tell the people what is to come. He says, tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. Now, obviously, they're idols. They can't do anything. God realizes this, but to further call out Israel, God continues. Behold, and pay attention to that behold, because we'll come back to it. Behold, you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. God calls out the idols and calls out the Israelites, calling them an abomination for choosing the idols. And then at the very end of the chapter, verse 29, God condemns the idols yet again, saying, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. So this is the setup that we enter into our passage with. A ruthless, destructive warrior. And people going to idols for security instead of God. We then begin Isaiah 42, which is the first servant song. As Nick talked about last week, we're studying the passages in Isaiah that point towards Jesus during the season of Lent as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter. These servant songs point to Jesus on the cross. They point to the fulfilling of the law with Jesus as the coming Messiah. Now, as the first servant song this is the first glimpse at a Messiah that Israel would have had, and a first impression is a lasting one. So we hear in the previous chapter that a ruthless warrior will conquer nations and people will run to idols for security. So if this is the first servant song prefacing what Jesus will be like, clearly this servant must be a grand warrior, big, buff, ready to conquer anything, provide security for the Israelites through war and conquering, right? Well, let's dive in and see what the passage says. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. So I mentioned behold earlier. Repetition creates emphasis. 
So in verses 24 and 29 of Isaiah 41, God says, behold, and then calls out the idols. And then we start Isaiah 42, behold, my servant whom I uphold. This is first emphasizing the idols, that they are worthless, and then emphasizing that the servant is not. In fact, God's soul delights in his servant. So think of behold as someone saying, check this out, this is important. Or as Nick said last week, repetition is God's version of a yellow highlighter. And we can look to Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, to parallel these verses. When Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit, descending like a dove, is put upon him. Then God speaks that he is well-pleased, or delighted, with Jesus. We have Isaiah saying, Behold, check this out, my servant whom I uphold, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And then in Matthew, that behold comes up again. Behold, check this out. The Spirit of God came to rest on him. And behold, check this out. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So this makes it very obvious that Jesus is the servant, and we know this. But who is this servant? What can we learn just from Isaiah 42? Because the Israelites would only have Isaiah's prophecies at that time and and couldn't cross-reference to the Gospels like I've been doing. So just here in the first four verses, justice is stated three times. And like I said, repetition creates emphasis. Jesus will bring forth justice. But like I said at the beginning, godly justice is different than worldly justice. So here I am, probably 15 minutes into my sermon, and I finally get to the big idea for you guys. The main idea of the sermon is that Jesus brings justice. But not justice in the way that we think. So verses 1 through 4 proclaim Jesus as the servant who brings justice. Verses 5 through 7 parallel that, showing how Jesus will bring justice. And then 8 and 9 is a call to glorify God and the fulfilled justice. Another way I break it down is verses 1 through 4 say who Jesus is, and verses 5 through 7 are his job description. So what is justice then? Well, justice is the upholding of what God has called right. Justice is not revenge enacted by another. Justice is not vindication. It is not brought about through anger. You see, at this point in history, Israel was still living under the Levitical law. That was how they upheld justice. Faithful obedience to God. But as we learn, Israel was not faithful, nor were they obedient to God or his law. So God sends Jesus to earth to be the faithful Israel and fulfill the law. But Jesus fulfills it in gentleness. In verses 3 and 4, we see this parallel. He won't break a bruised reed, nor will he put out a faintly burning wick. 
Jesus came to comfort and give justice to the marginalized, to the oppressed, to the ones who were just about burnt out. He came for the sick, for the hurting, for the lost. He came for the widows, the prostitutes, the outcasts, the substance abusers, the single moms. And we see this parallel in verse 4. Jesus won't grow faint or be burnt out like those he is coming to. Verse 4 says he will not be discouraged, but the word used there means bruised, just like in verse 3. He will bring forth justice to those in need, yet he will stay faithful and obedient through it all. Even the coastlands, the far ends of the earth, will wait for his law. And law and justice are pretty much used synonymously here. The coastlands, the far ends of the earth, will wait for his justice. But we need to look to the next verses to further understand this law and this justice. So starting in verse 5, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. So we now have this beautiful parallel in these verses to Genesis and Exodus. And I know this slide on the board breaks all the rules and conventions of a properly laid out slide. There is far too much text. The text is too small. But all you need to pay attention to are the, I think it's five times that I have Lord in bold. Because all the time it says Lord here, that is specifically saying the Hebrew word Yahweh. Other places in the Bible, it uses different terms for God and Lord, generally Elohim, which is a more generic term. It often uses Adonai. But Yahweh is the name God tells Moses in Exodus 3. So we see here in verse 5 that Isaiah is calling God Yahweh, reminding us that this is the same Yahweh that created the heavens and the earth and breathed life into man, as we see in Genesis 2, verses 4 and 7. Verses 4 says how the heavens and the earth were created by Yahweh, and verse 7 says that Yahweh was the one who breathed life into man. Then in verse 6 of Isaiah, we see that God will create a new covenant, saying, I am the Lord, Yahweh. I am Yahweh, and I will give the servant as a covenant for the people. And in Exodus, we're told that Yahweh is the one who will create the covenant of the Levitical law. So we have this written parallel across all these passages that the God who created the heaven and the earth is the same God who breathed life into man and is the same God that spoke to Moses. And after Isaiah 41, talking about the worthlessness of idols, this is such an amazing parallel because it's reminding the Israelites that the God, the Yahweh that they have known from the beginning of time is still with them. There is no other God but Yahweh, and he's reminding them of that. 
But we can see more parallels and references in this passage. Going back to verses 1 through 4, they are fulfilled in Matthew 12, verses 17 and 20, through 21. And this is where, just a couple verses beforehand, Jesus said that he was Lord of the Sabbath, claiming authority over the law. Jesus then heals a large crowd, but commands them not to tell people about the miracles. Fulfilling that he is here with a bruised reed and the burnt-out wick, but also fulfilling in verse 2 that he won't be causing a commotion or a scene over his miracles. Because he came for the hurt, the broken, the lost. And this is important for us then to go to Matthew 5, 17. During the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus fulfills this prophecy in Isaiah, and he fulfills the law as the faithful Israel. So how does Jesus fulfill the law? In Leviticus, the Israelites are always told to bring an unblemished sacrifice, a sacrifice without flaw, to atone for their sins. That's what Jesus did. He was the unblemished lamb. Fully God, yet fully man, he came down, sinless, unblemished, and became the permanent, eternal sacrifice atoning for the sins of man, just like the Levitical law used to do. And this is first indicated in verse 6. This is so pivotal to the coming of Jesus because it tells us two big things, two new things. First is that Jesus will be a new covenant. The covenant that Israel was supposed to be living under will be fulfilled in Jesus, and a new covenant will be established with Jesus as the sacrifice. But second, he, Jesus, the servant, will be a light for the nations. And the word here is Gentiles. It means that those that aren't the Jews. So verse 6 tells us that a new covenant will be for everyone not just the chosen people of Israel. But we see in the Gospels that Jesus preaching to the Gentiles, giving a message to the Gentiles, it was frowned upon by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish scholars, the elders, and even most Jews as a whole, to say the least. They were upset that Jesus was bringing a message to people other than just the Jews. Now, we today as Christians celebrate that we get to be part of God's chosen people. But it makes me think about the people that we view as Gentiles, as the Jews view the Gentiles, the ones that we say don't belong in church. You know, going back to Becky, I remember saying to myself and other coworkers multiple times, she needs Jesus. Now, that is true. We all need Jesus. She wasn't excluded from that, but neither was I. But the thing is, when I said she needed Jesus, what I meant was in a judgmental, harshful tone that she's hopeless, beyond repair, and Jesus is the only one that can save her, but why would he? 
she's a waste of time. She's not worth it. So if he really wants her brought into the kingdom, that's on him. But I don't want to share the gospel with her. I want her gone. I wanted to gatekeep Christianity because she didn't deserve it. But neither do we. But we do this all the time, don't we? Are there people in your life that you have chosen not to share the gospel with because they don't belong? Because I know I've done that before. But we can see all this indicated back in verse 5 when God calls Jesus in righteousness. God calls Jesus to uphold the law. God called Jesus to act in righteousness and be the new covenant for the people, Jew and Gentile. God calling Jesus in righteousness means that he is calling Jesus to demonstrate the righteousness of God through faithful obedience in upholding God's law and God's new covenant. So, now we know that Jesus is the servant who will bring justice. We know that he brings justice by fulfilling the law as the eternal sacrifice, bringing a new covenant, and by reaching all the nations. No gatekeeping. God promised radical change here in Isaiah, and Jesus brought that radical change. So we then have to ask ourselves, how do we live in that radical change? Well, let's look at the rest of our passage for that. Going to verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. We're reminded again that this is Yahweh, the personal name God gave us. But what is being said here? God is telling us that his glory belongs to him, no other, and in that his glory belongs to Jesus the servant. Yet again, the carved idols are mentioned from the previous chapter. God is not one of many. He's not the greatest in a group. He is the only God. Back in Isaiah 41, God tells the carved idols to tell of what's to come, then calls them useless because they're made of wood, stone, or metal, and they literally can't do anything. So he is further establishing his glory and power reminding us that he can speak of things to come and that they will come to pass. And we have seen that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's all of our passage, but what does that mean for us now? Well, let me remind you of the servant and his justice. Remember that justice is the upholding of what God has deemed right. In Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God's justice includes the wages of sin as death. That is still justice. But God's justice also includes Jesus paying that wage, paying that debt for us. Jesus upholds the justice of God's law fulfilled so that we can have the free gift of eternal life. 
because Jesus is the faithful servant who brings justice. He is the lamb of God, the lamb without blemish, the ultimate sacrifice and permanent eternal fulfillment of the law. This new covenant, Jesus fulfilling the law, Jesus fulfilling justice brought radical change. So, who is the bruised reed and faintly burning wick that needs the justice that Christ fulfills? In the world now, there are groups that fight for justice, but a fight for justice is a fight for revenge. Jesus shows us that justice is gentle, not violent. Justice isn't aggressive, but it is active. Nonviolent justice, true justice, godly. Justice brings about change. But violent justice, worldly justice, brings hurt. Jesus, the servant who brought justice, glorified God in obedience, in gentleness, in compassion. And godly justice means a restoration in fellowship as we are reconciled to him through the sacrifice of Jesus. But aren't there places where we seek justice from others, seeking revenge because of wrongs done to us? We seek repentance from others, turning a blind eye to how we have wronged others in our false pursuit of justice. So who's the person in our life that needs the justice of Christ, just like Becky is for me? Who can you share the gospel with to tell the message of eternal life in Christ Jesus through Christ Jesus? We must strive to be selfless in obedience to God, bringing justice by practicing hospitality, bringing justice by praying for those that need justice, bringing justice by loving those on our dorm floor, bringing justice by being an example of Christ to those around us. Bringing justice by being an example of Christ. Jesus practiced obedience through the ultimate self-sacrifice. So what needs made right in your circle, on your dorm floor, in your apartment, in your neighborhood? What needs restored to what God has deemed right and just? Seek to be a light to the nations. And looking at verse 8 as our final call to action, praise God, giving him glory. So, Illini Life, let us go out living like Jesus, seeking justice, striving for justice brought about in obedience and in compassion. Let us go out making disciples of those around us, sharing the love of Jesus. Let us glorify God in all we do, and let us strive to sing his praise and worship unceasingly. Will you pray with me?